Hi, I'm George Kalyas. Welcome to the GI Kalyas podcast, where we talk about art, philosophy, literature, and all things classical Greek. Today, we will be talking about Euripides' tragedy, Orestes. So our topic today is Euripides' tragedy, Orestes. Orestes is one of the late tragedies, probably the very last one Euripides wrote before leaving Athens for the court of the King of Macedon. Unlike all late Euripides plays, it pushes the limits of the genre and thus forces us to re-examine our conception of the tragic and to look at the whole Attic drama tradition in a very different light. Equally, it is considered a very dark and a very disturbing play. This is Euripides at his most nihilistic and pessimistic about human nature, showing us some particularly unheroic heroes resorting to very base acts, within the sort of chaotic contemporary conditions that the historians Thucydides and Xenophon describe in their histories of the period. And yet, it also has one of the happiest endings of any tragedy, especially considering what has gone on before. Let's kick off with some mythical and dramatic background. After King Agamemnon, the victor of the Trojan War, returned home from Mycenae, to Mycenae, he was slaughtered by his wife Clytemnestra and her lover Egistos. Many years later, Orestes, the son of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, returned to Argos. Now, don't be confused, the terms Argos and Mycenae are used interchangeably in tragedy. By the classical period, Mycenae had stopped being inhabited, so the tragic poets moved the plots of their family history to the neighbouring city of Argos. Aided by his sister Electra and his friend and cousin Pilades, Orestes in turn killed his mother and her lover. Each of the three great tragic poets has written a tragedy about the story of how the three cousins killed Clytemnestra and Egistos. We have the libation bearers by Aeschylus, we have the Electra by Sophocles, and we have another Electra by Euripides. All three of these plays are luckily extant today. Aeschylus was the oldest of the three, and in many ways his trilogy, the Oresteia, was the frame of reference for any retelling of the myth on the Attic stage. In the third part of the Oresteia, the Eumenides as it is called, Aeschylus described how Orestes was hounded by the Erinias, the murderous goddesses who avenged homicides, until, in a trial in Athens, at the court of the Areopagus, he was acquitted and his torments ended. Our play, the Orestes, is a sequel of sorts to the three tragedies of matricide. It opens five days after the murder of Clytemnestra and Aegisthus. Electra and Orestes are still in Argos, and Orestes, tormented by the Erinias, has been taken ill. Furthermore, the whole city of Argos is up in arms against them, and the citizens wish to punish them for the double murder. The two siblings get their hopes high when they learn that Menelaus and his wife Helen, the cause of the Trojan War, have just returned home. Menelaus is their father's brother, and they think that as their uncle, he's bound to help them. However, Menelaus is very reluctant, or at least unable, to be of any practical assistance. He claims that he is powerless in front of the mass of the people, and the most he can promise is to try to use persuasion to get the archives to revoke the decision to execute his nephew and niece. At that point, 
Tyndarius arrives. Tyndarius is the father of Helen and Clytemnestra, and so the father-in-law of Menelaus and the grandfather of Orestes. He's highly critical of his grandson. He does recognize that Clytemnestra's matter of Agamemnon was inexcusable, but he firmly believes that Orestes should have prosecuted her via the former legal channels, rather than taking matters in his own hands. And he's unconvinced by any of his grandson's argument, and he vows to press the assembly of the people of Argos to condemn to death both him and his sister Electra. Orestes, quite understandably, feels totally let down by his closest blood relatives when Pilades arrives. Pilades is his cousin, he is the son of Agamemnon and Menelaus' sister, and like the two older men, he promises to stand by his companion and cousin, no matter what, and share in his misfortune. They start off by going in person to the assembly to plead their case. Menelaus is absent or at least silent in the assembly. Tyndarius pushes for the punishment of his grandchildren, and Orestes' apology fails to convince the people. Carried away by a character whom Athenian audiences would recognize as a typical demagogue, a clever speaker, someone who leads the people astray, the assembly of the citizens of Argos condemn Orestes and Electra to death. Their only concession is that rather than stoning them to death, they will give them the opportunity to commit suicide, to kill themselves. Brother and sister seem to be at the depths of misery and desperation, and Pilades confirms his resolution to share their fate and their death. But it is at this point that we have a complete, dramatic, and perhaps scarcely believable twist in the plot. While the three of them lament the certain demise, Pilates has an idea. If they're going to die anyway, why don't they kill Helen and thus punish Menelaus for failing to help his niece and nephew, and for wanting to keep the throne of Argos to himself? And while they're at it, why don't they also burn the whole royal palace down? They will deprive Menelaus of it, and it will go down in a blaze of glory. Electra, though, goes one better. Rather than simply settling for a heroic, but rather colourful suicide, she has a plan about how they might escape. They should capture Hermione, the daughter of Menelaus and Helen, and use her as a bargaining chip to save their lives. Menelaus is bound to relent rather than lose both wife and daughter, because remember, Helen's murder is still very much on. If Menelaus doesn't relent, then Orestes will simply have to kill his first cousin, after of course previously having killed both his mother and his aunt. Orestes and Pilates are very impressed and delighted with Electra's intelligence and manly courage, and enter the palace to set the plan in execution. There's some confusion here about whether they managed to kill Helen or not, the Phrygian slave who describes events in the role of the traditional messenger is incoherent and rather scared for his life, but they do capture Hermione. So imagine now for a minute that you are sitting at the stands in the theatre of Dionysus in 408 BC, watching this play come to its end. Although it was very normal for poets to fiddle around with myths a little bit, people knew the general direction the story was going to take and there were certain facts that were too universal and too well known to be tampered with. And yet, here were Orestes, 
Pilates and Electra at the roof of the Palace of Mycenae. They may have already killed Helen, no one knows for sure at this point, and Orestes is also holding a sword to Hermione's throat, while Pilades is ready to set the whole building on fire and Menelaus is hurling threats and abuse at them. Now, the audience must have been wondering if Euripides, notorious innovator that he was, had gone too far this time in giving the myth a very idiosyncratic and completely unprecedented retelling. Let alone the fact that they were about to witness murder and arson live on stage, while traditionally, under dramatic convention, such acts would happen off stage and narrated later by a messenger. And then suddenly Apollo appears as the deus ex machina, the god from the machine, to give the play its resolution. Guess what? Helen, who after all was the daughter of Zeus, had not been murdered. She had been rescued by the gods, and now she would be deified herself, and literally become a star in the sky, like her brothers, the Dioscuri. Menelaus would have to go back to his kingdom of Sparta and find another wife. Electron Pilades would get married, as they did in most other versions of the story. Orestes would still have to go to Athens to stand trial for the murder of his mother, but he would be acquitted by a court composed of gods. He would then return to Argos and assume his father's throne. His bride would be the very same cousin that he is now threatened to kill, Hermione. A semblance of order and mythological orthodoxy has been restored. And apparently this was one of the most popular tragedies in antiquity and in the Byzantine era, but critics today are understandably more divided. First of all, it is easy to see why many feel cheated by the ending. The criticism here would be that Euripides allowed the plot to get completely out of hand. He wrote this preposterous and very bloody revenge tragedy and then had no idea whatsoever about how to end it within the confines of traditional myth or without sending the whole skinny, the scene of the theatre, on fire. So he had to introduce Apollo to give a completely artificial, unforced ending. And in fact, there's very much a sense of you mortals have had your fun, now it is time for us gods to take over and set matters aright to Apollo's intervention at the very end. The tragic hero is reduced here to an amusing nuisance for the gods, which would also beg the question of why Apollo did not intervene earlier on. Others have described the play as a nightmare. Euripides squeezed five horrendous days between the libation bearers and the Eumenides, the second and third part of the Oresteia, but in the end the basic scaffolding of the myth remains unaffected. The heroes have had a little brush with reality and with the judicial and political apparatus of the 5th century city, but now they can go back to fulfilling their mythological destiny. It is always extremely tempting to try to read Euripides' philosophy and motivations between the lines of his plays. However, as the conflicting interpretations of the various commentators show, this is always a very risky project to say the least. Having said that, we saw that the Orestes must have been the last play Euripides produced in Athens before he retired to the court of the King of Macedonia, where he spent the last couple of years of his life. Therefore, 
it is not very hard to read a complete disillusionment with Athenian politics in the scene of the Argive assembly. Aeschylus' biggest insight in the Oresteia had been that the establishment of civic justice at the court of Aeropagus would put an end to the vicious cycle of revenge killings and a family vendettas. However, Euripides' description of how such a civic court would play out some 50 years later, dominated as it is by selfish and factional interests, cast serious doubts on the ability of any such institution to deliver real justice. Apollo's final decree states that Orestes will be judged in Athens by the gods rather than humans, who presumably are unfit for the task. We are simply told that Orestes will become the king of Argos. No indication is given of how civil order could possibly be restored in the divided, rudderless and poisoned city that we have seen throughout the play. So here it would be very tempting to surmise that Euripides has simply lost all hope in the democratic system by that point and hence his decision to leave Athens. If you like rather silly puns, Apollo's prolonged delay or even absence in the play has given rise to the title of Waiting for God for the Orestes. Imagining a world where Apollo allows humans to sort things out for themselves for a little while gives Euripides the opportunity to illuminate certain sides of the myth that were taken for granted or even went unnoticed in previous versions. First of all, let's take the central idea in most traditional tellings of the myth that Apollo is responsible for the matricide by ordering Orestes to kill Clytemnestra. In this play, Orestes, with zero divine guidance, tries to kill his aunt and he's frustrated by the gods and he's a few seconds away from killing his first cousin as well. At least, as Agamemnon's heir, he had a genuine grievance against his mother. What grievance could he possibly have had against Helen and Hermione? Okay, Helen was arguably responsible for the severing of the Trojan War, but what right had Orestes to assume the role of her judge and executioner? And Hermione, of course, is the personification of purity. She's a mere pawn, a bargaining chick the three cousins use when they execute their over-the-top scheme. But even before he's convinced to go on his killing spree, Orestes in the play is a long way from being the simple instrument of the gods' orders. In his appeals to Manelos for help, he uses the language of quid pro quo political dealings. He reminds his uncle of the debt to Agamemnon and insists that now it is payback time. In his discussions with Tyndarius and in his speech to the assembly, he's eager to present secular arguments for the major side. If it wasn't for him, he says, husband killing would have become an institution. No one would dare leave his home to go to war, thinking what his wife might be up to with those of the men that were left behind. Euripides here is painting the picture for us of a young man who has to learn how to operate in the real world of the 5th century. The skills that Orestes develops in the play, bargaining, blackmailing, negotiation, use of sophistical arguments, attempts to form alliances, were exactly those same skills that were necessary for a political career, and as the war progressed and political differences became more intense, were necessary for survival as well, in Athens. This is a long way from the world of mythology. 
Equally interesting is Euripides' treatment of Orestes' madness. Ever since the epics of Homer, the Greeks had a tendency to project psychological states onto the gods. When Athena, in Book One of the Iliad, stops Achilles before he strikes Agamemnon, it is not 100% clear whether we have to think of her as a completely separate entity or whether to a certain extent she is the embodiment of the hero's intellectual and emotional processes. You may hear people talk about double determination in this context, what we would call psychology working together with the divine to shape a hero's actions. Reading the Orestes, the role of the Irenaeus in making him lose his mind and their ontological status, or more simply put, whether they exist or not, is not clear at all. Unlike the humanities of Aeschylus, where the Irenaeus appear in the chorus visible to anyone, here only Orestes ever gets to see them. However, no one in the play, not Electra, not Menelaus, not the chorus, seems to doubt their existence as real outside tormentors. At one point, Orestes even talks about the special bow and arrow that Apollo has given him, which would suggest a very mechanistic, magical way of thinking about them. Little monsters that can be killed using a special weapon that the hero gets from a god. However, throughout the play, especially when he is not tormented by the Irenaeus, Orestes also uses a language that suggests an obviously internal psychological mechanism, a consciousness and guilt for what he has done. In a phrase that has now become very famous in the history of philosophy and psychology, when Menelaus asks Orestes what sickness ails him, Orestes answers synesis, a word which is defined in the dictionary as judgment, understanding, awareness, conscious, a knowledge of what I have done the two levels here seem to exist in parallel. On the one hand, the mythical hero that has awoken the terrible monsters that are responsible for avenging homicides, and on the other, the moral agent who appreciates the gravity of his action. And in many ways, the fact that Apollo encouraged or even ordered the murder of Clytemnestra may be of limited importance here. But if the situation in Orestes' case is ambiguous, there is no indication at all that the other two, Electra and Pilamis, are the prey of any tormenting goddesses. However, as the play progresses, we see all three of them acting in an increasingly irrational manner. First, Pilamis suggests that they kill Helen. Then Electra trumps this suggestion by the added proposal that they use Hermione as a hostage and as a potential victim. And they all think it is a great idea that they burn down the palace of Mycenae. During the first meeting, Orestes warns Pilates, take care, you do not catch my madness. Now, we would not argue that the play adopts an infectious theory of mental disease, but from the assembly onwards until the end of the play, the three cousins seem to have entered a spiral where they lose all touch with reality and where their irrational ways of thinking feed off each other. Which, of course, brings us to another criticism often levelled against the play by critics, both ancient and modern. Everyone in this play is bad, is a bad person. Aristotle in the Poetics 
singles out Menelaus as an example of unnecessary meanness. But what about the other main characters? Orestes, the protagonist, seems to lack all admirable qualities. Tragic heroes are often obstinate, proud, uncompromising, even irrational, but there all seems to be a nobility underlying all their actions. Not here. Take Orestes' speech to Menelaus after Tyndarius has gone. He begins by telling him that the Trojan War was unjust, but Agamemnon, his father, went on with it anyway for his sake, so it is now Menelaus' turn to do an unjust act for the good of the family. We did some bad things for you, now you should be ready to do some bad things to help us. It is very ironic that at this point, Orestes tells Menelaus that he asks for no recompense for the sacrifice of his sister Iphigenia. Menelaus can keep Hermione. A bit further down, Orestes begs Menelaus in the name of Helen and immediately says, probably as an aside to himself, Oh, to what depths I have sunk! His big heroic deed in the play is to try to kill two close female relatives and the eunuchs who guard them. And there is a scene where he torments Helen's Phrygian slave before he decides to spare his life. And that scene is indicative of his weakness and his sadistic impulses rather than of any heroic spirit. Pilavis is completely silent in the two Electra plays, the Electra of Sophocles and the Electra of Euripides. He only speaks three crucial lines in the Libation Bearers, where he reminds Orestes of Apollo's command to kill Clytemnestra. Here, in this play, in the Orestes, he will simply not shut up. And although he is unfailing in his support of his friend and cousin, his advice is consistently catastrophic, starting with the brilliant idea of killing Helen, which, as has been pointed out many times, is simply a reenactment of the killing of Clytemnestra without the divine sanction. Similarly, Lectra, although very tender and very protective towards her brother, obviously carries a bitterness that is very unbecoming of a tragic heroine. And as time goes on, she becomes increasingly savage. We should notice the joy with which she sends her cousin Hermione to her death, and also her vindictive and impatient exhortations to the other two to kill Helen. Maybe what Euripides is telling us is that suffering and torment do not make people noble and elevated. They do not help them transcend the human nature towards something greater. They simply drive them mad and they make them cynical, calculating and ready to do anything to save their skins. And yet at the end Apollo appears to impose the divine will on this chaos and one of the main characteristics of the divine will, and this is something that all three tragic writers would agree on, is that to a large extent it is closed to human understanding. Orestes and Helen, who everyone assumed were hated and abandoned by the gods, are finally rewarded richly by them. Both of their roles as instruments of the divine plan are recognised. Helen's beauty, we learn, was used for the purposes of population control. The Trojan War was necessary because humans had become too populous and too arrogant and the numbers had to be drastically cut down. Helen will become a goddess and a star. 
Apollo also admits that he forced Orestes to kill his mother. Oh, Orestes replied with some incredulity, and yet I began to fear that I might have had some spirit and only imagined hearing your voice. He will be acquitted by the courts in the court trial in Athens and will return to Argos to take his father's throne and his cousin as a bride. And the cousin, who is the daughter of the most beautiful woman in history, is presumably quite pretty herself. Of course the Athenians were real. Three of them will actually act as the accusers in this same trial. By the way, no mention is made here about whether the cessation of the hand by the Athenians will also put an automatic end to Orestes trauma and guilt, or whether a separate course of psychoanalytic treatment will be required for this. The wedding between Pilates and Electra will go ahead as planned. Even Menelaus, although he loses the wife for whom he went to such troubles in Troy, gets to keep his kingdom of Sparta. If this is the least attractive set of characters in Attic tragedy, they are probably also the most blessed by the gods. And Euripides may be making two separate points here. A. You never know who the gods are going to favour. And B. This is the 5th century. You've got to do what you need to do to survive. Most of the time it is not particularly pretty, but hey, such is life. And finally, Helen of Troy makes a brief appearance at the beginning of the play and Euripides uses a couple of masterful strokes to give us a good sense of her vain, self-centred and inconsiderate nature. She begins by asking her niece Electra, whom she calls Maiden for all too long a day, to go present offerings to her sister Clytemnestra's grave. Apparently, she does not think that the fact that Electra has practically killed her mother is of any importance here. When Electra counter-suggests that she sent her own daughter Hermione instead, Helen replies that it doesn't look too good for a young virgin to walk through the crowns. And also Helen, supposedly, offers her hair to her sister's grave, but as Electra informs us, she has only cut off the tips, leaving her beauty intact. And this concludes today's episode of the G.I. Colliers podcast on Euripides' tragedy Orestes. I am George Colliers. I would like to thank you very much for listening and I hope to speak to you soon. Bye-bye.